Now, I'm not sure what it says about me, but I get more phone calls from people I don't know than people I do know. In fact, I think I get more phone calls from robots than I do from people. Maybe you can relate. They say that telemarketers have increased something like 35% in recent days, just in the United States, the number of robocalls that you receive. I mean, they've gotten really good. In fact, I carried with me a cell phone from another area code into the 806 area. And they've gotten so smart that now experts are calling it neighborhood spoofing. Robocalls will mimic the area code of your phone so that you think that that call is coming from within your community and you're that much more likely to answer it. Joke's on them. My phone's not from my community. And so I know when I get a call from an, another area code, the area code of my cell phone, it is in fact a robocall because my cell phone is not from my area. Of course, I always wonder or worry if someone's trying to get in touch, in touch with me from my home area code, they're gonna have trouble reaching me because I don't answer a single call from that number. It's amazing what they come up with, these schemes that these telemarketers and robocalls that, that call you. They're always saying something like, you're gonna get a great deal or you've won something or there's problems with your account. They're getting pretty clever. They start with something like, I'm calling about your need for lower healthcare premiums. And they get you thinking, well, maybe I do need lower healthcare premiums. I mean, my premiums are kind of high. I'd appreciate them being lower. And they have those positive spins like, you've been awarded a substantial sum of money. Or a vacation is waiting for you. Just press four. Those I understand. It's, it's the negative ones. I don't really get how people get roped into these. Like, I'm calling on behalf of the IRS. I mean, does that work? Are the people out there that are saying, oh, good, I've really been trying to get in touch with an auditor. Uh, can we talk? But personally, I, I think they always shoot too high. I mean, why not aim lower to get me listening? Most of the calls that I answer are so unbelievable that I just hang up because there's no way that it's actually true. I mean, why not just lead in a little more subtle, like we would like to buy you an average cup of coffee this week. I might listen to that. Hey, I, I like coffee. That might sound believable. Or maybe I'd like to mail you an enormous bag of Skittles. See, I would press pound for that. They might actually do that. You can have some of my information if you're going to mail me candy. They've gotten so good these days at hiding themselves in these calls. But I've also gotten good at recognizing those calls when I answer them on accident. You hear the voice or you hear the click or you hear the robot and I hang up as fast as I can. End call. Here, a couple chapters into Hebrews, the question is being posed. What will you do when you hear the voice of God? When it's calling, when it's giving you a new word, when it's giving you a new message, what will your response to this new word be? Are you listening? to be led into new life, or are you listening for the answer you want to hear, something easy or enticing enough to get you to listen or to keep you going in this journey of faith? Now we're in chapters four and five, but really this discussion begins back in chapter three, so we're gonna kind of 
lumped chapters 3 through 5 together as we hear the message for today. But one of the things that's happening in chapters 3 through 4 of Hebrews is that the writer is echoing, directly quoting the message of Psalm 95. It's this great psalm of a call to worship and praise. It opens with this moving invitation to sing and make a joyful noise to the Lord. It celebrates that, that God is a great God, the King of all, the rock of our salvation, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. And our response in the psalm ought to be to fall down and, and to worship him. But then with verse 7, Psalm 95, verse 7, the mood changes. For he is our God, it says, and we are the people of his pasture and the, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The psalmist, writing a lot of centuries after the Exodus, warns that a new day is dawning in which it's going to matter whether or not the people who hear this call to worship obey it or not. And God had warned the people way back in the wilderness that if they grumbled and rebelled and put him to the test, they wouldn't be allowed to enter his rest. And that's what we're looking at today. What does it mean for us to not fall into that same trap as the people in the wilderness that the writer of Hebrews refers to? And what does it mean to enter into God's rest? Dallas Willard once said that our failure to hear his voice when we want to is due to the fact that we do not, in general, want to hear it. That we want it only when we think we need it. Isn't that true of us? That we go searching for the voice of God or a direction from the Lord or an answer to our prayers when we think we need it. But so seldom in between when God so willingly leads us to life. He begins with Moses in comparison to Jesus in chapter 3. The writer of the letter of the Hebrews is working through the Old Testament scriptures to show how every part and every person and every story is pointing forward. So when he says Moses back in chapter 3, we're to have this, this whole story in our heads, this whole image of what that means. And of course, we aren't as immersed as these Jewish listeners were in the Hebrew scriptures. But hopefully we can recall that story of Moses, the story of the Exodus. That through him, God accomplishes this great act of salvation, leading the Israelites out of slavery. And, and they're spared from the justice that God's, God brings. And the Israelites in that story end up in the wilderness. And after this time in the wilderness of testing, following Moses, Joshua takes leadership. And it's Joshua who takes them to rest in the promised land. That's why in chapter 3 of Hebrews, the writer says, Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Hebrews 3.5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Christ was faithful over God's house as a son 
And we are his house if we hold firm the confidence and pride that belong to hope. So the writer of the Hebrews is continuing these comparisons to Old Testament stories. And we're supposed to recall and to remember that that Moses was this one who led them out of rebellion in the wilderness. The whole goal was to get them into the promised land, remember? And then 12 spies, when they get there, go and they come back and they report that the land of Canaan, the promised land, is not what they imagined. In fact, it's not even conquerable. I mean, there's like giants in there. And so the people, if you remember, rebel against Moses. They even go as far as to say, listen, why did you even bring us here? Take us back to Egypt. Put us back into slavery, they're basically saying. This is nuts. And God says, essentially, you don't believe I can take you into my rest? Then then you don't have to. And an entire generation will not receive that rest. They will not enter my rest. And so Hebrews 3.7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Quoting Psalm 95, as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors put me to the test. And though they had seen my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. They will not enter my rest. So the author tells us this story to say that Jesus is is superior to Moses, the larger, greater Savior than this. And there's this underlying challenge, this underlying question. What will happen if we reject God in this way? What will happen if we reject the message of Jesus? And so chapter 4 begins in that same vein, quoting Psalm 95, looking back to the story of God, this Moses, Exodus, wilderness generation. And why, why would the author retell that story? Well, he's retelling that story because we're meant to find our story in it, to see that that, that story foretells, points forward to the story we are now living. We're on a similar journey. There's this great exodus that has been accomplished by Jesus. That exodus language permeates the New Testament as a way of understanding Jesus' death. That's why his death was like the Passover lamb. And we remember that in our worship, in our remembering of the Last Supper and through communion. We celebrate and recall that Jesus is like that. And so the Jewish people made that part of their worship life. In fact, the Jewish people had many celebrations of salvation before Jesus. They had many feasts throughout the year, any number of which Jesus could have chosen to closely link with his own life, death, and resurrection. He does not, for example, choose the Day of Atonement to make his message clear to the disciples. What meal is it that he chooses? It's the Passover. And part of the imagery that's going on there is letting the people understand that there is a new exodus about to take place through his resurrection. And so we are in our own period of wilderness. And we're invited in in many ways to trust in his promises and to hold fast to them. 
And the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging that Jesus is ha- following Jesus is hard and, and complex, but we're invited to, to cling to it and to hold fast until he brings on the rest he has for us. And we're learning here in chapter 4 that the promise of rest is still standing. It's not just about the promised land. Psalm 95 was written well after that event. So what is that rest that Hebrews refers to that God has for us? What is it if it's not the promised land? That's what chapter 4 is explaining that while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest. Through his works, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world, For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place it says, They shall not enter my rest. So we're beginning to see here what that rest might be. The chapter starts by acknowledging that we know of this great salvation, the good news that these listeners had heard. But the message In the Old Testament, it was no use. It was of no benefit to the wilderness generation who never even saw the promised land because it wasn't combined with faith. It turns out we have really fickle hearts. And and belief is a very involved thing that's more challenging even than we imagine. And so we need to look closely. We need to pay attention to what's being said here, so that we can ask ourselves, what is this faith? It turns out that hearing is not the same thing as believing. So how do we know if like this wilderness generation, we've had unbelief or belief, a lack of faith or faith? You know, in in the Bible, faith and belief have a much more profound meaning than sometimes we assume. We throw around words in our English language like believing pretty loosely. I mean, like, I I believe the the sky is blue, or I believe that the moon is a a rock. Well, there's no commitment there. I, I have nothing invested in that. But when the Bible says that they are disqualified for not believing, there's more there. As we see throughout all of Scripture's faith, is manifested, it shows itself in faithfulness. Maybe another word that we don't really use a whole lot that we might draw on to think about faithfulness is the word fidelity. It's this rich word that speaks of loyalty and commitment and devotion. The people of God in the Old Testament were called to live in fidelity and faithfulness to Yahweh, to the one true God of Israel. And it turns out that belief is not just acknowledging him mentally, not even just following him in Exodus out of rescue. It turns out that that belief and faith are really shown when it comes to action, to how they live, to what they do, to how they respond to God's call and leading 
when he tells them to enter the land. You know, one really helpful way, I think, for us to think about this comes from a little book called Belief and Unbelief by a guy named Michael Novak. In that, in that book, he, he writes about the different ways our beliefs show themselves in our lives. He explains, basically, that there's kind of three different ways our beliefs or convictions are held or that we can think about them. You know, we have these public convictions. These are the things I'm, I'm happy to say I believe, things that I'm, you know, I, I profess to believe. Those are my, my public convictions. My public convictions are things that I'm, I'm glad to put out there in front of people and for people to see about me and know that I, I believe in. And alongside these public convictions, we have, have maybe private convictions. Things that we think that we believe internally, the things that we hold to ourselves. And it turns out that in his book that even these are unreliable because really we like to think of ourselves a little bit too highly. I like to think that it's, it's good to sacrifice for others, but it turns out sometimes I'm actually stingy or selfish. I like to think that it's good to do this or that, but it turns out that I, I very seldom do it. And so our public convictions are shallow and empty because they're really just what we say, what we put out there for, for people to see about us. And our, our private convictions, the things that we, we know and, and believe even within our own hearts about ourselves, are skeptical because, because really they're not tested. And the third category he calls core beliefs. He says we never deviate from these. They're like really our default mode. They're shown, these core beliefs are shown but how I live. So don't look at what you tell yourself, don't look even at what you say, but look at your behavior. And you'll find out what you believe. So don't watch my life and just what I say or what I confess to believe, but look at my choices, my actions, my daily living, and you'll find my core beliefs what I truly believe. And so he explores the gap that exists between what we say we believe and what we think we believe and what we actually believe. When you start to explain it that way, I think it's helpful to see how a wilderness generation can, can say they believe something, can even think they believe something, but when it comes down to it, what they actually believe is how they respond to the voice of God. I mean, these people sang God's praises when they came out of Egypt, but when it comes to venturing out, to taking a, a step of faith that scares them, no way we're going into that land. And it shows what they actually believe. And it turns out, and this is an important distinction for us as people of God, it turns out that hearing the message, even sitting in a community of people that speak of God and agree about certain things and, and hold certain doctrines to be true doesn't always mean anything. What means something, what distinguishes between the people who will not benefit from the good news and will not benefit from the message of God, what distinguishes between these things is our living our behavior. How does my life reflect this core commitment, this allegiance, fidelity to Jesus? And it turns out that even 
our own view of ourselves is terribly unreliable. But my actions expose my core beliefs. Maybe a good way of illustrating that is to think, for example, about some of the better things that are emerging right now from our own culture. I mean, one of the best things receiving attention right now in our world is that people of color in America are asking for a greater effort from others at matching public convictions with actual core beliefs, our behavior. And so my, my private convictions may be that all people are created in the image of God and, and equally valuable to Him and to the world. That's why it's, it's a no-brainer for so many people to say, well, of course I'm not racist. And my public convictions, and a good many people have realized that they must in these days be more public about their private convictions to profess the same beliefs they believe to hold themselves. But even that doesn't expose my core beliefs from what I do. And so the calling becomes in this present moment, as in every moment, as the people of God have always been called to, to consider whether my behavior is properly expressing my private and public convictions, the things that I say and, and think I believe, will actually, actually be a core belief of mine when I begin working, as all Christians are called to do, working for a more just and equitable world for all God's people. And this same theory applies to all matters of living out God's holiness and justice, that our faithfulness to God's way in all things is evidenced by our actions. And when it came down to it in the wilderness, in this moment of choosing, they didn't choose to trust in God's promises. And because their actions reveal their false faith, they miss out on all that God has for them. And we should take note, and this is what Hebrews is getting at, pay attention while the promise still remains. God has accomplished our salvation, our rescue, a new exodus from death to life, from bondage to freedom. And what is your response? Is it a response of faith? Not mental assent or ascribing to something as true, a doctrine, but faith, faith that is exposed by how I choose to live, what my priorities are, And even more so, Hebrews is saying, if my false faith is exposed, what is the cost of that? What do I miss out on? And the answer in chapter 4 of Hebrews is that I miss out on entering God's rest. God's rest. And so what does it mean that people are invited into God's rest by believing. And we hear of rest first in creation. It's pointing all the way back to Genesis 2 that all creation is God's temple. 
And, and in the end, on that seventh day of creation, God enjoys it. And so Rabbi, speaking of God's rest in Genesis 2, would state that, that day seven really has no ending like the other six days. And so rabbis concluded that the day of God's rest was this eternal and everlasting rest. And so the rest remains. And that divine rest of creation, that day seven completion, the perfection of God's design, is marked by this enjoyment of God's world that did not end. And so to live in God's good world is to live in a world where God is at rest, is at peace, is at completion with creation. And so when we hear about this in Hebrews 4, we have to understand that God's rest has been available long before it was offered by way of the promised land to the wilderness generation, the people that Moses had led in the Exodus. And that rest that pre-existed them and continues on as Psalm 95 professes, that rest is the, pe- is the rest that the people are invited to. One commentator suggests that the rest spoken of in Hebrews 4 is not the, the promised land of Canaan, but a share in God's own way of existing. I don't miss that. The rest in Hebrews 4 that we're invited to by belief is not some promised land, but a share in God's own way of existing. Which is another way of saying that God is offering you a share in His life. A share in the life lived before us in Jesus and offered to us by His resurrection. That this new creation has burst forth and you're now called and invited to be a part of it. And so Psalm 95, written hundreds of years after the promised land, is talking about another rest, which is available every day. And that's why it says today. So look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Since therefore it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience, Again, he sets a certain day, today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann has a lot to say about the life of the Trinity and and the kingdom of God. Well, one of the things that he, he draws out of this incarnation of Jesus, this life of Jesus, is that he is communicating to us the love of God. That it's not just an emergency measure that Jesus would come or that God would become human to to deal with sin, even though that's part of it, that's a big part of it, but his life and his resurrection are the, the foundation of a whole new creation. He calls it the perfecting of creation. That is, in Jesus' life and death and resurrection are bursting forth a new way of life held out to us who would believe. <clears throat> so do not harden your hearts to this word, we're told. In chapter 4, verse 9 continues, So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did, did from His. Let us therefore... Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one 
may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Verse 11 reminds us that we are to strive to enter God's rest, this rest that we're talking about, this completeness in Jesus that he offers to us now but will complete at the end of history. Strive toward faithfulness to God, we're told. It's kind of the irony, maybe a paradox put together here by the writer of Hebrews. You never know what you're supposed to be doing. Am I supposed to be resting or am I supposed to be striving? It gets confusing. I remember not long ago, one of our staff members caught me in the hallway on the way to preach. That Sunday's sermon was entitled, To the Other Side. It was about Jesus calling his disciples to get in the boat and to cross the lake. And he stopped me in the hall and said, well, preacher, am I supposed to get in the boat or get out of the boat today? It's one of those funny ironies that on one Sunday we may be challenging because the scriptures challenge us to get in the boat with Jesus and trust in him. And the next Sunday you're saying you have to trust Jesus and get out of the boat and walk on the water with Peter. You never know what the scriptures are going to be calling for. And here, as soon as we're invited to enter rest, we're told to strive for it. As soon as we're told to, to, to stop working, we're told to work harder. But really the two aren't the opposite. It, it's because this rest points us to the gift of God's grace and his accomplished salvation, that we can call it rest, that it's not something we can earn or, or work for. It's, it's gifted to us. But once you internalize the gospel and begin to live your life in the work of rest and Sabbath, I can miss out on God's rest because I'm not striving toward it. Maybe it helps to think of the fact that, that in faith, to be sitting still is to be moving backwards. We have to maintain our focus. Later, Hebrews will say, fix your eyes. Here it says, pay attention to Jesus. He's inviting you not into a passive uh, realization or a sitting back and observing, but to an experience of salvation and rest in Him. So examine whether it is that you believe this in your mind, or whether you're believing through the evidence of your life, through the striving toward the goodness offered in God's grace. And to help with that, to help with that, we've been given this word spoken of in Hebrews 4.12. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides from soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before him no creature is hidden. And all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. You see, the gospel has a way of working its way past all our mess, and, and like a sword or a scalpel, the message of Jesus, the, <clears throat> for the writer of Hebrews, that's the, the, the entire Old Testament reaching forth to Jesus' life and the, the story about him that's been told. It's news that searches and gets into your heart. Because when my failure and sin and the gap between my belief and behavior is exposed, I'm invited to, again, to have faith in the gospel to transform and, and to bring new life. And we've been given this word so that it can penetrate, it can cut, it can slice right to the core and to, to reveal in us 
And that's good news because I need to be renewed. I need to be healed. If, if I had a disease, I would want it treated. If I had cancer, I would want it cut out. If sin has permeated my being, let the word of God come swiftly to teach my heart and my life what it means to be who God created me to be. And it's good news if that's what I long for. If I have nothing left but to strive for the life Jesus offers me through his love and through his grace. I like to play a game with my son at bedtime. He's a challenge to get to sleep and so these kinds of things help us. We like to tell a story, except neither one of us tells the full story. In fact, we go back and forth and you only get one word at a time. He says one, I say one. He says one, I say one. So the story might begin that he says thee, and I say whale. And he says went, and I say to. He says thee, and I say grocery. And he has to say store. And the next thing you know, we've got a whale going to a grocery store, and the story continues back and forth. One person can't really decide where the story is going to go because the next person could throw it for a loop with one word, a new character, a new place, a new verb, or simply the word and to keep the story going. And man, he loves to keep the story going. We make some run-on sentences. It's kind of like that game you played in elementary school. Maybe your teacher did this where you, you're instructed to begin a story on a piece of paper and so we would write on those lined notepads the beginning to a story. When she rang a bell or on her command, we'd pass each paper to your right and you'd continue the story someone else started. You might take it somewhere they never intended it to go and then we'd pass them again. Next thing you know, you're, you're 10 people down the row and you're ending a story that you had no part of writing, but you're writing a whole new ending, an ending none of the people before you even imagined. And we love to do that, don't we? You see, sometimes we like to make up a story that seems in the moment of crisis or in the moment even of selfishness better than God's script, better than God's story. And that's precisely the problem that Hebrews is addressing here. It's what we do when we think that God's absent or when we lose confidence in the trustworthiness of his promises. Tom Long says it's what we do in those inevitable seasons when the gospel seems too little to keep going. When our faith is challenged, when trouble starts, or when the storms of sorrow start to rage, or the weeds of failure grow up in the garden, when the valley of the shadow of death closes in, when the mouth goes dry in the spiritual desert, we're tempted to make up a new ending, to trade God's story for one that's happier or easier or, or more upbeat or safer or less demanding or at least one we can touch and see and hold in our own hands. Sometimes we even think that we're wiser or smarter, that we could finish this story on our own in a better way that God did, in a better way than God does. But exchanging God's story for another one is this old and chronic problem that leads to nowhere. It plagued Moses when he spent so long on Mount Sinai that the people looked to Aaron and said, come, make a God for us. Or when Jesus' road led to suffering and death and, and Peter cries out, God forbid it, this must never happen to you. 
Or when Paul, having just left the churches in Galatia, writes back to them in Galatians 1, I'm astonished that you so quickly desert the one who called you and are turning to a different gospel. And the preacher of Hebrews knows about the human tendency to abandon the gospel for a more attractive story. And yet, we're called to hear God's voice and to follow only His story, to believe and to trust in the ending He has written for us, the one to which all of Scripture points. God's story is held out before us to take hold of. So today, listen to His voice. And as you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Press on, clinging to the one story that will lead to God's good and precious life, to the rest that comes in a life of striving and faithfulness toward God. Join me as we pray. Father, we ask that in your power and in your spirit and in the grace of Jesus, we might be a people who hear your voice and who respond in faithfulness and in loyalty, allegiance to you alone. Amen.